So of all the New Testament epistles, all the letters, right, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, they take up the largest chunk of uh, New Testament real estate. There are 29 chapters in those two books. And if just a cursory reading of those, uh, it's pretty easy to see why. And the first century church in Corinth had issues. Boy, howdy, did they have issues. It was a very cosmopolitan church. Uh, it was a very divided church, and it was a pretty backbiting church at times. And it was often more shaped by that pagan culture in Corinth than it was the gospel that Paul brought to Corinth. So Paul is going to employ some corrective theology here throughout both letters. He's going to exercise that apostolic oversight just like a good bishop would do. Um, and some letters are more corrective and some are more affirming. This is definitely one of those more corrective ones. So as always, we're joining the conversation midstream. And that's hard. I don't know if you've ever tried to, ever been at a party or some gathering and you step into a conversation midstream. It's hard to get oriented. You're kind of going, you have limited data. Okay, who are we talking about? Maybe you know them, maybe you don't. Uh, what's going on? Maybe you know what's going on. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're familiar. Maybe you're not. Um, that's one of the harder things about reading the epistles and, and interpreting them well, is that we're always entering a conversation that's been going on and we're doing it midstream. So uh, from what Paul says and what evidence suggests, there's even a third letter to the Corinthians that was lost somewhere along the way. So there's, there's big missing pieces here. Um, that's one of the hard, uh, or the difficulties of, of uh, interpreting the epistles is that you get fragments of a story, you get uh, puzzle pieces of conversation, but we're still able to piece some things together and uh, draw some meaningful conclusions from what's going on. So the riveting topic, which you already heard, is food offered idols. Now, everybody, don't get too excited, okay? Just, just calm down. I know you're pretty excited to talk about that. Okay, that's hard to relate to. That's not really something that we immediately go, I, know, I understand what that means. This is that cultural gap we're facing. Uh, it might seem really irrelevant, might seem arcane to our modern minds, but I think as we go through this, you'll see that Paul has some very timely and wise counsel for us. Now, uh, you'll notice that Paul quotes things throughout the passage. If you have your Bible open, it, you'll even see it noted. What he's doing is he's alluding to something prior. When he says, we all know that, you know, all possess knowledge. We know that an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. He's doing this quote thing. What he's probably doing is alluding to things the Corinthians have said in previous letters, and or he is naming or, or citing popular phrases or sayings of that day and age. So that kind of is, what, is what's going on there. So let's begin. Okay, we're going to take verses one through three, and you'll find Paul introduces a topic, but it still will be a little vague until we press further into it. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. There's one of those quotes. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Okay, the first thing we learn about this issue of food offered to idols is this idea of knowledge, gnosis, and love, which he says agape there. So this is that, uh, we commonly know that as, as sort of self-sacrificial, uh, very selfless God love, if you will. Those are the two themes he's, he's going to play with, knowledge and uh, love. And for some reason, they're at loggerheads. They're in opposition to each other. We don't really know why just yet, but he uses this as a contrast to begin fashioning an argument, which is Paul does this a lot. Um, somehow, 
This is all we know. Some of the Corinthians are pitting knowledge over and against love. You know, knowledge of what? We don't know just yet. Using knowledge for their own benefit versus prioritizing love. So here's the framework Paul lays out. On one hand, we've got knowledge, and he says it puffs up. This is a great image. Um, when, he mean, when he's talking about this, it means that it gives something the appearance of uh, being bigger than it actually is. Uh, it's being proud. It's being posturing. It's like if you've ever been in like the gym culture and you walk, you know, you see the guys that are walking around with their chest out, what's up? I mean, it's kind of that thing, right? It's that puffed up thing. It's the big hat, no land syndrome. Um, let me give you some examples from the animal world. What happens when cats get in a fight? They turn twice their size and they sound far more threatening than they actually are. When the crisis is over, they shrink back to normal size. Uh, think of uh, proud male peacocks preening, you know, they shoot those feathers out. They're as, they're as big and uh, just larger than life. Um, but when they're not trying to press someone, they go back to sort of their normal state. So this puffing up is it's temporary. Okay, it's manufactured. So knowledge can produce false pride. That's the picture here. Okay. Now, you know the type. Maybe you've been the type. Maybe I've been the type. You know, this is the person that needs to be seen as an expert. This is the person that might need to seem wise or very spiritual. Uh, they go to great lengths to make sure that others uh, see them in that way, kind of laboring to make appearance equal reality. They want everyone to know that they're the smartest gal or guy in the room. So evidently the Corinthians have leaned upon knowledge in a similar fashion. It's made them proud. It's, it's puffed them up. Larger, sort of, they've gotten too big for their britches, if you will, as the old Southern aphorism says. Whereas, and here's the contrast, love builds up. Now this is exactly what it sounds like. It's a construction metaphor. Uh, picture building a house. You pour the uh, foundation, you uh, frame the walls, you put on the roof, uh, and so on. And you're making sure that everything is, is sound and it's strong and that it's plumb, right? Straight as it should be. Uh, that's the nature of love. And Paul loves to use this same building metaphor when he talks about our spiritual formation, our sanctification, like in places like 1 Thessalonians 5. So um, the idea is that love, unlike knowledge, which can puff up temporarily and falsely, love changes us. It doesn't wear off. It's permanent. It's a permanent addition, right? Uh, love brings about some real change. So in other words, love builds up. It adds to the Christian community like a coral reef the same as the right exercises the spiritual gifts. So that's what love does. It's additive, okay? It's not false. It's not manufactured. It's additive. And God is forever adding on uh, new wings. Just help me with, go along with me with the metaphor here. God's adding on new wings and new rooms and new additions and for new family members, right? Here's the house. It's being built. It's not temporary. It's, it's permanent. Knowledge, I would say, is a bit more like a Hollywood set, if you've ever seen one. It's all facade. Looks great on the outside, but there's literally nothing behind it, and nobody lives there. So appearance and reality, they don't quite square. So we've got knowledge which puffs up, and love which builds up. That's something permanent. So to be clear, so Paul's point here isn't that knowledge is bad. It's not about that. Uh, he's talking about what you do with it. Um, he's speaking out against knowledge as like an end in of itself, or knowledge that isn't practiced, isn't put into 
is put to work. So knowledge has a godly purpose. I mean, it's intended to be transformed into something, understanding, wisdom, uh, ultimately into love. Look at verse 2. Those who think they know something don't yet know as they ought to know. So knowledge should lead us to charity, to service, to love. But evidently, for the Corinthians, knowledge is self-serving and is being used for some selfish means, as we'll see later. But love knows that we belong to each other, right? We're not just individuals, right? We're part of the body of Christ. We're a community. How we handle ourselves affects other people. So knowledge might benefit the individual, but what benefit does it hold for the church community as a whole? Paul's very concerned with that. More to come on that in just a sec. So here's what's going on. Paul is already underscoring a certain elitism, right? And sort of spiritual snobbery that plagued the Corinthian church and happened on a lot of different fronts. This is just one of them. Uh, he gives them a, a pretty good tongue lashing later on in the book uh, for how they're handling communion as well. So there, there's a lot of issues. Um, the gifts that God gave them, in this instance, some knowledge or understanding, some sort, became a source of pride. And, uh, and it's that dark, seductive temptation to feel special or to feel wiser than your fellow believers when God gives you some spiritual insight. That heart posture, that puffing up, uh, is such a strange response to grace when you think about it. So strange, so antithetical to it. The corrective or the litmus test is verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he or she is known by God. This is so good. I can't tell you how good this is. Um, to be known by God. That's the real point. It's not about you know. It's about the fact that God knows you. and he's, You're known to him. So what's the proper focus? How much I know about God or the fact that God knows me, right? The first is measured by facts and figures, and typically they're pretty arbitrary and they're pretty finite and uh, limited. The latter, God knowing me, is a relational thing that we measure by grace. Uh, I don't know about you, which measure do you prefer? Better to have a lot of unpracticed knowledge about God or better to be known by him? Uh, option number one puffs up. Option number two, the gift of grace brings humility and gratitude. So I'm taking door number two. That's what I'm betting on. So this is the heart of the matter, really. Um, and we haven't even got to the presenting problem. Meat offered idols. We'll connect that in just a second. But Paul moves to that in the next verses, uh, to the question at hand. How are Christians to handle the issue of food sacrifice to idols? Let me read 4 through 8. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Uh, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat it, no better off if we do. Okay. Context. Very important. So if you're a new convert in the first century in Corinth, there are a couple of realities you have to navigate with this issue of food sacrificed to idols, which most commonly was meat. 
Okay, so that's, I'm going to couch it in those terms. One, it was really difficult, maybe impossible, to spiritually source where the meat came from, like where you bought it. It was hard to know if it had come from a pagan sacrifice or not. What happened is in these pagan temples, you know, part of the animals offered to the idol god, part of it went to the priest, part of it went to the people, and the priests would take what was left over and they would sell it to the market, and the market would sell it to the people. So there's a problem there. Some believers thought that this meat was potentially defiled because it had been used to pagan connections. So that's one issue. The second issue was that it was an accepted social practice to eat meals in a pagan temple or in some places associated with an idol. So that's a cultural norm. And Paul definitely calls that into question other places. Let me complicate it even further. Meat was expensive. Guess who could afford meat? The upper class. So the lower class couldn't afford meat. So pagan temples were often the only place they could get a good square meal. I mean, what a setup if you're a poor Christian, especially if you have a troubled conscience. So here's the specific context and situation Paul is addressing. Apparently some Christians are going into a pagan temple containing idols, duh, and eating food that is offered there. By their example, they're encouraging other Christians to do the same, but this also is confusing others. Now, we may go, big, fat deal. Uh, well, this proved pretty fractious for the Corinthian church. I mean, they were divided into two camps over this, and here are the two camps. This will make, this will make sense. First camp, those who are eating the meat, but with a guilty conscience. They didn't know if the meat was undefiled or if it had been used in a sacrifice. So they're really torn about it. Two, listen to my words really carefully here. The other group is those in the know. Am I linking that to knowledge? Yes, I am. Those in the know who are convinced that there is but one God who owns everything. You know, their, their issue is what's the harm in eating before a block of wood or stone? What's the deal? Who cares if this meat has been offered to a non-existent deity? Uh, God's little g, or so-called God's little g. Now, Paul affirms this position, actually. This appears to be his personal conviction, his belief. That's not the issue. <laughs> the issue is those in the know what they do with that knowledge, um, how they handle it within the Christian community. That is what Paul is calling into question here. So hopefully this is starting to make uh, a bit more sense. Uh, verse 7 says, not everyone possesses this knowledge. In other words, some have it, some don't. Paul says weak. Uh, it's not a derogatory term. He's just saying some are weak in their understanding or knowledge. The weaker brother or sister, the one who doesn't know that everything belongs to God, that it's all his, uh, they're free from the law, etc., etc. They eat this meat, but they go against their conscience and they're conflicted. So that's the real divide here is between these two camps those who feel guilty but have partial knowledge and those who do have the knowledge but aren't exercising it properly. So it's divided the church and it's a real issue. So Paul's solution is to call them back to love, which is about far more than having or holding the right position on any given issue. The ever quotable GK Chesterton says this, to have a right to do a thing is not the same as to be right in doing it, okay? Or if you prefer, I'm going to give you some of Paul's own words from 1 Corinthians 10 and 6. Everything's permissible, 
but not everything is profitable. Okay. Let me read verses 9 to 13. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, as I said before. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat the food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The issue here, and this is where it gets to ground level for us, where we take the cultural uh, oddities that separate us and the cultural distance, I should say. The issue we're talking about here is how we use our Christian liberty. What do we do with the freedom given to us, uh, that right to act in some particular way? Thus the word rights that Paul uses. Now, one author describes this dilemma in a very humorous and modern way. I think that makes it easier for us to understand. So get a load of this. Suppose that you're in a covered dish supper at your church. It's not COVID, okay? Imagine that. Someone brings a platter of food saying, the local Satan worshipers had a table set up at the mall giving away this food. It's delicious. Would you eat it in front of everyone? There would be no actual power of Satan in the food. It would be fine to eat it. But how might that be interpreted by others? What impact might it have on a new convert or on someone who would take that to mean that there's no real difference between the things offered to Satan and things offered to God? In a context where no one would have a problem with it, it would be fine. In a context where someone might be led to fall because of it, it would be wrong. Okay, that's Paul's point in verse 11. Uh, and so by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Your personal knowledge, eating meat is fine, uh, it all belongs to the Lord anyway, has the power to harm someone, your weaker brother, sister in the Lord. Paul goes even further. Listen how he describes it. He says that this posture destroys and wounds. Those are the two words he uses, your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a sobering thought, that knowledge can be weaponized against the very people for whom Christ died who are your brothers and sisters. Thus, you will find that Paul is 100% uninterested in individual rights when they're used against, over and against the well-being of the body. He just is. Um, verse 12 tells us that when we use our knowledge, our freedom, our liberty uh, in this way, it's not just bad judgment. It's not just poor discernment. It's actually sin. It's sin against a brother and a sister. It's a literal wounding. The word there is really uh, quite vivid. It means you strike someone vigorously, you beat them up. So you wound their conscience. And this translates also into sinning against Christ. To hurt someone in Christ's body is to hurt Christ too. Now this is a very personal truth for Paul. Think about this. Think back to the days before he was converted and how he persecuted and harmed those in the early church. Then he has his Damascus Road experience in Acts 9. And Jesus says what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes the persecution of his saints uh, pretty personally, evidently, uh, as if it's done to him. So for those who are in Christ, anything done against them is therefore done against Jesus. So when we get to that last verse, 13, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore, uh, if food 
makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat me, lest I make him stumble. I mean, now we understand, right? There, there's really no further explanation needed. Uh, the governing principle that's relevant for us is what we do with our freedom in Christ. What do we do with it? How do we handle our Christian liberty, our Christian freedom, our, our rights? Um, rights, as Paul's talking about here, they're not sinful. I mean, like knowledge, they can be misused uh, to wound someone's conscience or to bring harm to them. And how many times have we watched this in the Christian community the last few months? A lot more than I've wanted to see. It's been grievous. So I'm going to go a bit here from preaching to meddling, as one of my um, seminary professors used to say. This is a hard thing for us. I think when we talk about rights, I think that's a loaded subject. And I think for Americans, that's a bitter pill for us to swallow. Uh, it is in our cultural DNA to have rights. Um, We're sort of like the fish swimming in this ocean of rights, and we don't even know it. Uh, we assume it. Uh, we're born into it. Um, we freely assert our rights. We freely demand our rights. We feel we deserve our rights. And we assume that we'll always have access to our rights and should. We feel entitled to our rights in many ways, rather than being grateful and humble for them. So as Christians, we have a greater claim on our lives, and that is the claim of grace. So we don't assert our rights, be they civil or otherwise, without regard for other people. We don't do that in the church or in the public square. But in keeping with the context of what Paul's talking about, the church, what he's saying within the church, our rights are to be weighed in the context of the Christian community, what effect they have on others. I think one of the great um, cancers in the church is how our rights and our freedoms can be used as a pretext to judge. Uh, and ultimately, there's pride there too, isn't there? Let me explain what that is. I mean, you can be proud because of the things you choose to do. In this case, I can eat meat sacrificed to idols, or I can do this, I'm free to do this or that. We can be proud about that. Um, or we can be proud because of things we choose not to do, right? People abstain from certain things. You know, that can make you feel a little high and mighty. Uh, I don't drink alcohol. I don't eat this sort of thing. I don't own a TV. I don't do that. You can justify or you can glorify uh, indulgence or abstinence. They both can turn into legalism. That's the irony. So asceticism is just as harmful as hedonism. They're just as bad. To be truly free in Jesus means we cannot give in to the temptations of legalism. Isn't it ironic? How ironic is this? That we take something called freedom in Christ and turn that into something legalistic. It's a terrible irony. It's a tyranny over our brothers and sisters. Let me give you some phrases, you know, uh, you might sound familiar to, you know, they're the, you know, we have the true gospel. Oh, we're those people. We're the ones who really take the word of God seriously. Or we've got the real skinny on who Jesus is. Sometimes it's subtle. Uh, not always. Uh, sometimes there's a very dismissive, condescending tone. And that's regardless of the theology of the denomination. This is an equal opportunity employer that I'm talking about. The theme is pride. The theme is pride. I remember some of my early experiences with uh, Reformed theology. I was really wrestling through some honest, difficult questions. I remember talking to uh, one guy from a church, and I was just kind of sorting through things and one asked questions. 
And he just kind of goes, oh yeah, you'll get there, bro. <laughs> you know, pat on the back. Didn't engage my questions, didn't really talk through anything. It, it was so dismissive. And even if he was right in that knowledge, which I found out later some of it he was, how he handled it, it just was not beneficial, was not loving, right? So it, my point here is there are just a lot of counterfeits floating around, a lot of legalisms that masquerade as like the true gospel. And they're usually end up being either additions to the gospel or omissions. Um, there's the, uh, I have it all together. You can have it all, Christians. There's that. There's the politically active Christians who want to tell you which political party you should be part of. There's the charismatic Christians who tell you that they're the only ones who really understand the Holy Spirit. There's the thoughtful, well-read, ivory tower Christians. There's the, we're the truly free in Christ Christians. There's the end times apocalyptic, this is the way you should be living Christians. It's exhausting. There's the, I am of Apollos Christians and I am of Paul Christians. There's the, hey, we're the Anglican tribe. We got this church history and theology thing figured out, Christians. There's that. Denominations do this all the time, right? The list is endless. So uh, all of these factions and divisions believe in some sense that they're the real or the serious followers of Jesus, that they're special and they know something that the others don't, but should. And this just goes to show that we can all have a correct foundation. We can all have the right knowledge, the right theology, but we can still have a Gnostic heart. It's a condition that we have to watch out for, all of us, myself included. Grace is the cure. Always, 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 always the cure. Verse 3, we do not know as we ought to know. Whoever loves God is known by him. That's the point, be known by God. So the core question, I think, for this passage, boil it all down for us. The core question is not how much do you know. It is how well do you love? What do you do with the knowledge and spiritual insight that God's given you? This is about maturity, right? What do we do with our rights? What do we do with our freedoms? Do we use it in service of others? Lay it down, right, for the sake of the gospel? Or do we use it for own benefit and find pride in that? Let me give you a really good picture of how we can dispatch our gifts in the service of God. This is Paul later in 1 Corinthians in chapter 9. Listen to this. Though I am free, belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like the one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like... Let's see, one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those who not, those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul shows us there's this need for self-sacrifice, for self-discipline when it comes to our freedom and to our rights. We're stewarding something to win people for the gospel, to bless the body, to preserve a peace and harmony. I mean, you want to find a mature Christian? Find somebody who quietly, discreetly, and willingly lays down their rights for their brothers and sisters 
the church in the world without drawing attention to themselves and go hang out with that person an awful lot and see what you can learn. So closing here, meat sacrificed to idols, that's just not an issue for us. Uh, what are the issues for us? I've alluded to some. Culturally, uh, I've honestly been, uh, oh, what's the adjective? It's, it's made me cringe and it's made me ashamed to see some of how our brothers and sisters in Jesus have handled themselves publicly the last few months, how they've gone at each other. Uh, even if they disagreed, there's such a lack of love and such a spirit of legalism in so many key areas. Um, folks, that destroys our witness and it brings harm to our brothers and sisters and it grieves Jesus. We, we just can't do that. We've got to do better than that. So let me end. I'm going to give you three questions. I'd encourage you to write them down and just reflect on them this week. Because um, some of these, uh, if you're like me, you made a little time to chew on them. I certainly did with these and still am. So first question, where is your heart drawn to the legalism of indulgence or abstinence? In other words, uh, yeah, where do you embrace uh, your freedom in Christ and sort of go whole hog with that, but turn into a legalism that is held against your brothers and sisters? Or well, do you abstain? where do you abstain from something and look down upon those that are doing the same? So where is your heart drawn to the legalism of indulgence or abstinence? Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's drinking alcohol or not. Maybe it's praying a certain way or not. Maybe it's whether you fast or not. Legalism just isn't freedom. That's what I'm trying to point. I'm trying to get. Where's your heart drawn to those? Do you feel one of those you're drawn to? And where? So probe that. Second question, and this is a bit more rubber meets the road. Uh, where do you need to lay down your rights? Where do you need to lay it down? Uh, and the need to be seen as right as well. Where do you need to lay that down? Uh, put another way, uh, do you leave room for your brothers and sisters, uh, or have you taken up all the space? Does that make sense? So where do you need to lay down your rights? Where do you need to lay it down? Last question, uh, and this is maybe even more fundamental. Where are the places you've settled for knowledge about God, stuff, uh, rather than just truly knowing him and being known by him? Just having the joy of that, right? So where have you settled for knowledge about God versus being known by God and knowing God? Big difference. In all these things, I want just to point out the obvious. Let's remember how Jesus employed his actual rights as the Son of God. And he had a right to these things, far more than we do to ours. He had a right to these things with the entire company of angels at his disposal and with God the Father's wholehearted approval. How does Jesus choose to spend the whole of his life? In service to others, emptying himself and laying down his rights us.